Well, good morning, and for those of you who uh, might not know it, my name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here with Christ Redeemer Church. Get the chance to preach about once a month, and uh, as I've had opportunity to do that lately, we've begun to get into the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to go ahead and keep uh, ourselves there in Ecclesiastes today. We're going to move into chapter 2, and then actually I get the chance to preach next week as well, so we'll continue and hopefully finish out chapter 2 um, next week. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes is right after the book of Proverbs, roughly in the middle of your Bibles. If you happen not to have a Bible with you, you can raise your hand and Greg will make sure you get one. Uh, and if you don't have one of those Bibles at home, you're welcome to keep one as well. So we'll be reading from Ecclesiastes in just a couple minutes. Um, but let me say first, just, that, uh, just a reminder that a major theme working throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is that of uh, the vanity or the futility of life. And very often that gets connected to some sense of, of discontent or uh, dissatisfaction or related emotions. And, and that discontent and, and those related emotions, that discontent, that, that rouses, us, uh, rouses us up to go searching for some kind of solution, some kind of uh, savior, we could say, someone or something that will save us from the press of whatever kind of futility we might be enduring. Because really intuitively, I think, most, if, if not all of us, we can feel sort of deep down in our bones that things are just not the way they are supposed to be. There's got to be something better. And so we go looking for a solution to that. And I think Ecclesiastes 2 here points us to one very popular option to which people turn. Uh, it's an example of a popular savior we could say, to which people often turn to find some measure of relief from, from again, the press of uh, futility, and that is self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. We feel the, the press of futility in whatever form it might take for us. Something's broken, broken, fix it. How? Indulge self. Take care of yourself. Invest in yourself. Do what you must to build yourself up. Um, here are some just random quotes that I pulled off of the internet related to this, just to make this point. Um, one person said, so many dreams are waiting to be realized. Maybe it's a business that you've wanted to start, or, or perhaps it's, it's something as simple as growing a home garden. Or even maybe still it's a trip to another country that you've always dreamed of visiting. Whatever it is, you owe it to yourself to do whatever you have to to make that a reality. You owe it to yourself. Uh, another quick quote here, a self-help coach named Jim Rohn. He said, happiness is something that you design. Happiness is something you design. So self, self-indulgent self-designed success and pleasure. That's a popular answer. That's a popular place to turn 
to the solution or for a solution to the problem of futility. And while that's a popular place that people turn, the writer of Ecclesiastes would say that that too is futile. It's futile because it's selfish and it's futile because it's fleeting. And uh, I'll come back to that a little bit later. But in any case, it's futile. That's the writer's conclusion. And so we're left to ask then about what's a better answer? To what or to whom or to what or to whom uh, do we look or should we look for escape from this sense of futility? So we're going to consider that this morning. Um, So let's read from Ecclesiastes 2. Um, Before that, uh, please pray with me again. Lord, thank you for the opportunity for us to be gathered here together this morning. And I pray very simply um, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that you would use these words to admonish the idle and encourage the faint-hearted and to help the weak. And I pray that we would all receive this word from you as a patient father who wants what's best for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we'll read till verse 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart to cheer my body with wine. My heart is uh, still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to uh, water the forest of growing trees. I, bu- I, bought my, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun." Okay, so in the previous uh, section, in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, the writer uh, said there that he was going to apply his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom everything that is done under the sun. And he had a thesis going there, and his thesis has been confirmed, and that is that futility is everywhere. Vanity. Everything is vanity. That's his conclusion. Um... And in then this part of chapter 2 now, the writer is going to now begin to recount his efforts to do that seeking and the searching. And he's going he's to put to the test the value of self-indulgence in various forms. Might these things satisfy? Get more stuff. Build status and power. Get a tranquil place. Enjoy multiple sex partners. Get entertained. 
Might these kinds of things help us to escape whatever our particular uh, form of futility might be? The writer's going to test that. Now, I want to say at the outset that I think the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of enjoyment in and of itself, is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's commended at multiple points in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Right here in chapter 2, down at verse 26, we see there that joy is called a gift from God. Um, Chapter 9, verse 7 says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So So the problem is not so much the desire for pleasure in and of itself, But I think it's more the issue of self-indulgent pleasure. And it's it's seeking pleasure really as an answer to the kinds of futilities that we might be facing. Um, I think uh, we, we could say it's seeking pleasure as a kind of savior, again, to save us from our futility. Uh, That's more of the issue here. And so the the net translation uh, reads, for example, at verse 1, it says, come now, I will try self-indulgent pleasure to see if it is worthwhile. And I do think that gets at the heart of the writer here. I'm going to test self-indulgence and I'm going to see if the pleasure that is to be had in it is worthwhile. Will it satisfy? Will it stem the press of futility? Let's find out. And uh, and so he mentions the pleasure of wine in verse 3. And he probably has in mind there um, all of the things that, that, could, uh, that would have been associated with wine, like the good life, or celebrating, partying, uh, uh, wealth, maybe sophistication, um, maybe just a carefree life, and so on. And then he speaks about the pleasure of great works in uh, verse 5, meaning probably uh, just great building projects that resulted in his um, increased possessions. He made houses and vineyards, gardens, parks, all kinds of fruit trees, watering pools. And interestingly, I think, uh, in verse 5 there, the word for parks, it's actually from that word Uh, once we work through the Persian and the Hebrew and into the Greek, we actually get an English word there. Uh, Our English word for paradise comes from that word for parks. So the writer is holding nothing back here. He's working to create for himself nothing short of a personal paradise. A personal paradise. In fact, commentators point out that the language here related to gardens and parks and trees and so on they really could remind us of the garden, the paradise, the Garden of Eden. And I think actually that that illustrates very well for us what people are intuitively doing when we're searching out a solution to the world's futility. We know that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And we intuitively then want them to be the way they are supposed to be. Namely, the way they were created to be uh, back in the start. We long, really, for the paradise of Eden. Now, we might not acknowledge that, especially if we're not um, uh, believers in God or believers in Christ. We might not acknowledge that. We might not put it in those terms. But we as Christians and non-Christians, that's really what we're hoping for, 
in our quest to stem futility. That's what we want for the grand solution, something like the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect place, a peaceful place, a place like Genesis 2.9 says where there is every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That's what we want. And so it's not strange then that we'd so often look to whatever is pleasant to the sight, whatever is good to consume, to escape from the various nuances of futility. And this essentially started with Eve in her temptation in the Garden of Eden. The devil tempted Eve, tempted her to eat the fruit from the tree that God said, no, don't eat that. And so Genesis 3, 6, Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. And that's been humanity's problem ever since and, it, and, and really is the root cause of futility itself. And it's the problem with every proposed solution to Futility. It's that God responded to that. God responded to that human sin by Adam and Eve by separating humanity from the Eden of the deeply desirable, the delightful, the good, the, the, the pleasant that is found in God and in his designs. And ever since then, in various ways, we're all trying to get back there. We want Eden. And Usually, that means reaching out to take things for ourselves, to indulge ourselves with whatever we perceive is pleasant and good and desirable. And this is essentially, I think, what the writer is doing and illustrating uh, for us in this section of the book. Now, bear in mind that as the writer is testing these things, he does so from the perspective that I've uh, mentioned in the past few sermons, um, and it's this perspective of what the writer calls under the sun. So this is a, a view of the world. It's a view of potential problems and a view of potential solutions to those problems that does not account for God. It's secular in that sense. It doesn't account for God as it considers these things. And so in looking for solutions, it's a kind of Eden-seeking it's an Eden-seeking. It's, it's groping for what's pleasant and what's good with no reference for God or no reference to God, no reference to what he might define as pleasant and good or how he might guide us to engage in things that are pleasant and good. But even not accounting for God, the fact remains that we are all made in his image and we have all roots in the Garden of Eden. All of our roots trace back to Eden. And so it makes perfect sense that we all would intuitively grope again for, for what's pleasant, what's good, what's desirable, as it was there in Eden, even if how we would define pleasant and good is so often mistaken. And again, I think this is essentially what's illustrated for us here um, as the writer is testing these things. And so he goes on in verses 7 and 8 and 9. He speaks to amassing loads of possessions and treasure. His estate is growing huge with more slaves and children and concubines and treasure. His estate is just growing massive. And he's getting the best entertainment that money can buy. 
And notice that it is all about him. It's all about him. It's all about getting for himself, like in Eden, anything and everything that is pleasant to the sight and good to consume. And just listen to uh, these excerpts from uh, verses 4 down through 10. Okay, I'm just going to run through it with a bunch of ellipses in there. So verse 4, and just notice how totally self-centered all of this is. Verse 4, I made, I built, and planted for myself. Verse 5, I made myself. Verse 6, I made myself. Verse 7, I bought for myself. Verse 8, I gathered for myself. Verse 9, I became great, my wisdom. Verse 10, my eyes, my heart, my reward. I, 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 myself, myself, myself. It really reminds me of, uh, of this comedy bit by Jim Gaffigan. Now, I'm no comedian, I'm no Jim Gaffigan, but if you know uh, him at all, uh, he's a comedian. He's got one of these bits where he's talking about people uh, looking at themselves in the mirror while he uh, works out. First of all, he talks about how he can't understand why anybody wants to look in the mirror when they work out. He says, I know what I look like. That's why I'm in the gym to begin with. And uh, so, he, but, but, so he takes on this persona of somebody who is looking at himself in the mirror, and he says, well, if I'm going to be working out, I might as well look at something like myself. I want to look at myself while I work on myself. And maybe I should make a recording of myself so I can listen to myself while I look at myself, while I work on myself, while I'm leafing through Myself magazine. Maybe I can read some stuff about how I can improve myself. Maybe I'll look at my Facebook page, see some photos of myself, and read what I've written about myself. This is the bit. And uh, it is very funny. It's a very funny bit. But it rings with the spirit of this section of Ecclesiastes, I think. There's just a ton of self-focus here. And I think we even intuitively know that so much self-focus is just unhealthy. Now, we should note here that all of this stuff that the writer mentions, um, I would say, of course, this stuff actually brings actual pleasure. Everything that he's giving himself to, actual pleasure. And the writer acknowledges that. Uh, In verse 10, he says that he did find pleasure in, in working to get these things. But then immediately, right after he says that, in, and then in verse 11, he says, actually, it was all vanity and a striving after the wind. So the idea here is to say that, sure, it might be fun, this self-focused pleasure-seeking. might be fun for a while, but he couldn't hold on to it. It was a fleeting pleasure. And the writer concludes that, that, that uh, looking to this self-indulgent pleasure for help, ultimately, it's no help at all. And so what it, what it comes down to in the end is it's, it's looking to futility to escape from futility. Not going to work. It doesn't take a rocket science uh, scientist to figure that out. In the end, it's looking to futility to escape from futility. And it's futile for a couple reasons, I think. First of all, again, it's just selfish. Well, why is that a problem? Well, being selfish as it is, as these pleasure pursuits are, then it can never fully satisfy. Why can't it ever satisfy? Well, it can't ever be fully satisfied because by definition, the pleasure is attached to a person's own personal desires. 
And I think all of us know deep down that our desires are pretty much limitless. But yet, we are finite, we're limited, and so there's in no way, there's just simply no way that our desires could ever be fully met. We can scratch the surface, but we're never going to get as far as our desires go. So it's fleeting in that sense. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's an inherent futility be, built into running after these things. Now again, that doesn't mean that there's no pleasure to be found in these things, but just let us be warned that there is a futility that is built into it. And then secondly, this self-focused pleasure-seeking is futile because it's fleeting. It doesn't last. It doesn't last, and it actually can't last. It, it's impossible for this pleasure to last. The pleasure, uh, and that's because the pleasure is attached to non-lasting things. So if the thing that is getting us happiness is temporary, then by definition, our happiness is going to be temporary. So if I'm getting pleasure from eating cookies, for example, which I often do, then once those cookies are gone, I literally cannot get any more pleasure from the physical act of eating those cookies because the pleasure is bound to the act of eating those cookies. So when the cookies are gone, the pleasure is gone. And that's just as true for, for uh, good things like a family vacation or, or night out with, with friends. The pleasure won't last because those things don't last. And so we just need to be careful about, how, about the hope that we would place in these kinds of pleasures to help us escape from the futility that we might face. So if our pleasure is attached to something that is fleeting, then the pleasure itself will be fleeting. And so the writer has tested this self-indulgence and he sees plainly that it is lacking. And he says as much in verse 11. And so these very things to which so many people look for escape, they themselves are futile. This self-indulgence, building self, making for myself, getting for myself, and so on. So it begs the question, I think, again, to what or to whom should we or to what or to whom do we look for escape from life's futility, if not self-indulgence? What are we going to look to? Well, not surprisingly, my answer is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Um, in fact, Jesus can be the only ultimate solution because of what the problem actually is with regard to futility. The problem is not boredom that can be answered with entertainment. The problem is not loneliness that can be answered with sex partners. The problem is not stress that can be answered with a garden or a park or wine. The problem is not poverty that can be answered with money. The problem, ultimately, the reason, ultimately, for the futility that might be related to boredom and loneliness or stress or poverty or whatever is human sin. Genesis 3 and Romans 8, other parts of Scripture suggest that God subjected the world to futility in response to human sin. And again, that started with Eve and Adam in their, in their choosing uh, against God and against what he provided for them for their good. That is essentially what sin is. Choosing against God and what he's provided for our good. Adam and Eve did that and it's been a problem ever since. And so then, if sin is the issue, 
not boredom or loneliness or stress or poverty or whatever. If sin is the issue, then the solution can only be a savior who can deal with sin, namely Jesus. But things like entertainment, sex, peaceful parks and gardens, alcohol, um, nice homes, money, these things and more can be very, very good in and of themselves. They can be very helpful to lessen the effects of futility. And, and they can be used for God's glory um, as they are enjoyed according to his designs for those things. They may be very good and, and pleasurable. It's just that they make really lousy saviors. Might be very good. They just make really lousy saviors because they cannot address the sin which is the root issue. And so to what or to whom will we turn for escape? To what or to whom do you look to escape? It's a good question for you to ponder this morning. And I think this part of Ecclesiastes helps us to see that self-indulgence and its various, um, its various pleasures are not the answer. Self-indulgence in its various pleasures is not the answer. They, they come up short. The, the self-focus, the fleeting nature of these things leave us short. And so keep looking and find the answer in Jesus. Find the answer in Jesus. Find the answer in his teaching. Uh, Jesus teaches us that a full, satisfying life is not to be found in self-focused indulgence, but rather much more in an others-focused life, and that other ultimately being Jesus himself. Uh, it's, so it's not, a, it's not a self-focused life, it's a Jesus-focused life. Meaningful life is not, does, isn't going to be found in indulging in self for self, but it will be denying self for Jesus. And if we're going to be trusting Jesus, or if we do trust Jesus to deal with the root of all futility, namely sin, if we're trusting him alone to forgive our sin, if we're trusting him alone to deal with the sin of others, those who hurt us with their sin, uh, he, because he will deal with that sin. He, he will deal with our sin and other sin, either on the cross or in hell. Are we trusting Jesus for that? If we're trusting that Jesus died for us, then his call is that we would live for him. Living for self is only going to inflame this problem of futility. In Jesus, he's calling us to a life that won't do that. He's calling us to a life not lived for ourselves, but to a life lived for him. Meaning that we would live to represent him, uh, in the world, that we would live to advance his agenda in the world, and that we would reap the very non-feudal benefits of that life. Um, so, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15 says that Jesus died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So if you're trusting in Jesus for it, then Jesus died for you. Jesus was raised up for you so that we would live for him. And so let Jesus worry about you. Let Jesus be concerned about you. You live for Jesus. And, and uh, 
in doing so, boy, that, that's the path to full, satisfying life. That's the answer to our experience of futility, whether that's boredom or loneliness or stress or whatever it is. And in fact, that life is not the least bit boring. It's not the least bit lonely or stressful or whatever. It's not lonely because when we're saved by Jesus, we are saved into the community of his people. So it's not an isolated life. Um, Acts 26, verse 18. Jesus there says, excuse me, I just lost my spot. Technology. Acts 26, 18. Hang with me. So close. There it is. Acts 26, 18. Jesus says that we get both forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in him. Those come together. Forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in Christ. So it's not a lonely life. We get forgiveness and community. And then that becomes more and more evident. That becomes more and more real. The more we press into that reality and actually live our lives together, the more we share our lives together with one another in community. And it's not a boring life. Man, this life that Jesus is calling us to is a life on the move. It's a life where we are ambassadors for Jesus. We're representing Jesus. We're carrying Jesus' message with Jesus' character. And that puts us in the heat of spiritual battle. So Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that as we live for Jesus, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's not a description of anything remotely related to boredom. That doesn't sound boring to me at all. War in the, with the forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's not a description of, a description of anything remotely boring. And, the, and, and the, that becomes more and more evident, more and more real to us, the more we press in to engage that spiritual warfare. The more we engage in this mission in life together community. And this life in Christ, boy, on mission with his community, it might not mean tranquil peace of parks or gardens or wine or a cup of coffee on the patio. It might, it might not mean that kind of peace, but it, it does mean the inner peace of contentment. And that contentment is not attached to any temporary thing like a garden or a park or a glass of wine, but it's attached directly to the person of Jesus himself and, 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 and the favor that we have with God in that relationship and the acceptance and the inclusion that we have in his people because of that. And boy, it's a peace that comes with knowing that we know that we know in the bottom of our souls that we are loved, that we are accepted, that we are empowered, that we are included. That is a deep, lasting peace. And, and that's a satisfaction that is sourced in an eternal person, namely Jesus, and, and his eternal community, namely the church. And so it's going to last for eternity because it's attached to an eternal thing. Jesus and his people. And there's a spiritual wealth that comes with that. That doesn't equate to physical riches, physical wealth necessarily. This is not a guarantee against poverty. Uh, but um, it is 
connected to what 2 Corinthians 9 calls a harvest of righteousness. So Jesus said that it's actually more blessed to give than it is to receive. And as we believe that, as we really, truly believe that, and as we use then what money and what resources we do have, not just to keep getting and getting more for ourselves, more for ourselves, but in giving to others, the more that takes place, then there are gains that the Bible calls the harvest of righteousness and treasure uh, that is stored up for us in heaven. So to what or to whom are you looking to escape from the kinds of futility that you are facing? Whether our experience might take the form of boredom or loneliness or stress or poverty, uh, whatever. Things like what we see here in Ecclesiastes, like, like entertainment, um, sex, peaceful gardens and parks, alcohol, nice homes, money. Boy, these things can be really good in and of themselves if they are understood and they are used accounting for God. But in themselves, as I've said, they make really lousy saviors. They make lousy, lousy saviors. Jesus, on the other hand, he deals with our sin. And so we get forgiveness and we get a place among his people. We get called to his agenda. We get filled with spiritual peace and wealth right now. And then we get the promise of an ongoing eternal peace in a real physical community and real physical treasure of some kind in the eternal new creation. So self-indulgent pleasures, boy, make lousy saviors. So I, I commend Jesus to you. And I would say, choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you very much for uh, the opportunity again that you've given us to gather. And I just want to repeat uh, my earlier prayer that with everything now that has been said out of my mouth in the last 30 minutes, I pray that you would take it and you'd use it as each of us needs. Some of us need admonishment. We need a rebuke. Some of us need encouragement. Some of us need help because of where we're at in terms of our heart set in terms of what's going on in our homes, what's going on in our neighborhoods, what's going on in our careers. We all come from different places, and so I pray that you would use this word um, when all is said and done for our building up, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.